But none of that matters if you're not trusted. Know your case. Know the law. And please, please, please remember, reputation is everything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law, or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Welcome to The Student Lawyer, everybody. Uh, My name is Stephanie and I am a third year law student. And today we have a very special guest on the show. It is his honour, Judge Richard Shepherd, And we are delighted to have you here. So welcome to The Student Lawyer. Hello, everybody. I hope you find it interesting. (laughs) I'm sure they will. So... um, his honour, his honour, Judge Richard, has kindly uh, said that I can address him by Richard going forward. So, Richard, it's great to have you here. I'm very excited to be chatting with you. We are going to start the show off with two truths and a lie, the legal version. Good. Just to check, is is, is this a ripoff <laughs> of would I, would I lie to you? <laughs> I've never seen that. <laughs> So if I say no, and it is, will I be sued? Luckily, I'm not a defamation lawyer, so I don't know. <laughs> okay, right. So I'm going to I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that anyway, <laughs> and uh, and just go on. Uh, I would like to say though, I cannot verify if these are in fact true or false. So I would just like to as well admit that before we go on. Can, can I just stop there? So what we're playing a truth or false game without you knowing which is true and which is false, just to, just, just to get the, the benchmark here. I mean, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, you know, swear that I uh, okay. I know if these are true or false, but I just thought I would caveat that before okay. we go on. I'm going to reveal what I think is the, uh, the lie at the end of the uh, episode. So, Listeners, make sure you stick around for that. Okay, so number one, Lord Denning's full name was Baron Alfred Robert, Robbie for short, Denning. Two, in Milan, the law states that it is a legal requirement to smile at all times except at funerals or hospitals. Number three. 
it is illegal to keep a pigsty in front of your house unless suitably hidden. What's the lie? Does the pig need to be suitably hidden or is it the pigsty? I think it's an important caveat. I think it's the pigsty. Otherwise, they would say pigs, right? I know I'm going to get this wrong, but it has to be the Milan. Milan has to be a lie because you can't be that happy all the time. Well, I've never been before. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) It it has to be. Oh, it's in a, it, on, on a cold November down in Portsmouth versus Milan. Don't get me wrong. You know, I know where I'd rather be, but I can't imagine that law will say you have to smile except at funerals and other sad places. I can't right. imagine it. We will see. I'm going to reveal all at the end. Okay, okay. So let's start off. Can you please explain the reasons or reason that you decided from the civil law barrister and then subsequently a circuit judge um it's true that in the later years of my career as a barrister i did mainly employment and professional disciplinary work so generally civil Mm. but i also maintained a criminal fraud and regulatory practice alongside it but i didn't start out that way i started out as a an old-fashioned general common law practitioner doing everything civil crime personal injury landlord tenant employment and then over the years you develop and find things that interest you uh, and you sort of refine your practice over the years i'm a big believer in starting broad and then distilling your practice uh, over the years and i'm certainly aware of colleagues who have done one practice area for 15 years and then switched practice areas completely so uh, the fact that i ended up as a civil practitioner um, certainly didn't mean that that's what I intended or chose to do so at the start. But in terms of becoming a circuit judge, it, it certainly wasn't my part of my plan originally. I was just happy to get a pupillage and then happy to get a tenancy in a chambers mm-hmm. that I did pupillage at, which was Albion Chambers in Bristol. And I don't know. It, it wasn't probably until seven or eight years ago that I even began to have thoughts about becoming a judge. I'd seen friends and colleagues be appoint- appointed, uh, and I thought it looked quite interesting. Uh, and it was at that point I started taking on more responsibilities on the pupillage committee in chambers with the Western Circuit, I don't, becoming an advocacy trainer, becoming more visible, writing for LexisNexis. I think they probably call it CV building or something like that. Um, But then in 2017, I applied to become a recorder. So in essence, that's a part-time circuit judge. And it's often a first step to becoming a circuit judge. There are other ways, but that's a a common way. Um, So I was appointed as a part-time judge in 2018. And I applied for a full-time role in February 2020, uh, just as the first lockdown was looming. Um, And I was told I got this job in the spring of 2021, so about uh, an 18-month process. Uh, But like with all things in life, it was rather than a a master plan from the start when I was a pupil, um, it it, it sort of developed organically and you find yourself in a particular role. Yeah, that sounds very interesting, very interesting journey. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, having a goal, but 
trying different things and seeing what what suits you yeah it it, it, it it's interesting isn't it because if you become target fixated on a particular outcome you miss all the good stuff along yeah. the way. If you think, I'm going to be a criminal practitioner and that's what I'm going to do, you miss the opportunity of maybe doing an inquest, but with a jury using all of those jury handling skills that you developed in crime. I just think you've got to be open to opportunities and open to a bit of flexibility to, I don't know, pull up your your big kid pants and say, I'm going to do something that's a little bit outside of the norm that I'm used to. And that's where the fun stuff is. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. Uh, Can you tell us some of the responsibilities of a circuit judge and what uh, court they sit in? Yeah, um, I'll I'll certainly do my best, but you'll, you'll (laughs) appreciate that my knowledge of a circuit judge is a criminal circuit judge. So I'm ticketed in crime. So I sit in the Crown Court. So I could become ticketed or qualified in the family courts or the civil courts. And at some point in the future, I may do so. But at the moment, I'm a Crown Court judge. So that's where my knowledge is. Before you go on, may I just, sorry to interrupt you, may I just ask, I've never heard uh, the term ticketed before. Would you just mind explaining what that what that, what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so ticketed just means you have your badge. Um, and it might mean that you've gone on an extra course. It might mean that you are of sufficient experience to be trusted to do particular cases. So let's say in the criminal courts, as a recorder, as a circuit judge working in the Crown Court, um, you start off being able to do most cases. But you have to have, for instance, to do appeals from the magistrates court with two magistrates alongside you, you have to become ticketed to be an appeals judge. Then if you wish to do serious sex cases, you need to go onto the serious sex course to become ticketed. Um, There are other tickets to become an attempt murder judge or a murder judge, for instance. So there are there are these strata of circuit judge of crown, crown court judges. But for the most part, the second you start to sit, you can do the vast majority of cases. But your add ons are appeals and serious sex initially. And then your later add-ons, when you're 10, 15 years experience, may well be your attempt murder and murder tickets. They're specialist see. tickets. Thank you for explaining that. That's okay. So um, circuit judges generally, so I said fine, uh, sorry, family, civil, crime. But they, there's also some other ones where they sit in the technology courts or um, other, uh, I think on the Employment Appeal Tribunal will have circuit judges in sometimes. So there are other deployments of circuit judges, but generally it's crime, family and civil. Mm-hmm. Okay. So returning to your original question of uh, what are the responsibilities? So again, returning to the Crown Court. Uh, my job is to case manage criminal cases that come into the Crown Court, so generally the more serious criminal cases. They enter the system at one end uh, as new cases. Often they're quite poorly defined. There's not much in the way of electronic paperwork at the start. But as the case moves through the system, it's meant to become more defined until it's uh, trial ready or indeed somebody pleads guilty or indeed the prosecution realises that the case isn't good enough and they they drop it. Um, So that's the case management side of things. You've also got to make sure that 
everybody um, throughout the process is treated fairly. Not only the defendant, uh, but also witnesses, the alleged victims, also the police, the lawyers, everybody involved in the case because it's a stressful environment. And therefore, by treating people fairly, it just takes that little bit of the sting out of what is quite a stressful environment. Mm. Um, Then uh, I guess if a case goes to trial, your job is to be the referee in that trial to make sure that everybody sticks to the rules, that only fair and proper evidence goes in front of the jury. That is evidence that they can reliably use to decide guilt or innocence. And you've got to make sure that the jury understand the rules and the evidence. Because sometimes, for instance, it would be unfair for a jury to use a piece of evidence in one way, but it would be perfectly fair for them to use that same piece of evidence in another way. Mm -hmm. So it's your job to explain those rules to the jury so that they can make a fair decision at the end of the trial. And then, of course, if a defendant is convicted or if they've already pleaded guilty, uh, it then become, becomes a Crown Court judge's job to sentence that defendant. And we have a, a whole menu of different sentencing options, uh, depending on the seriousness of the case and all the other factors that might be involved. Um, and then I guess sometimes as part of a, a sentencing exercise, uh, towards the end of a sentencing exercise, uh, there may be an application by the prosecution, for instance, for a restraining order or for other orders for uh, a bad driver to be disqualified or for an application to take a criminal's ill-gotten gains from them, so proceeds of crime. So there might be this side litigation after the conclusion of the rest of the case. That's fascinating it sounds like the way that you describe it it just it sounds such an appealing profession being able to um be involved in these cases and and really really just get in there and sort it out you you sound very calm and if I was ever um on a case or had a case I you I would want you to be judging it to be honest you sound very you know I'm very impressed just on that it's like it's like every lawyer we we steal bits from other good lawyers so over the last 20 years i've appeared in front of some brilliant judges so i've stolen the bits and pieces that have worked really well and you sort of cobble it together in your own frankenstein's monster of a version of a judge that you want to be Uh, and the truth of it though is that when you're going through the cases and getting involved in sorting it out, for the most part, you're relying upon two top quality advocates in front of you, instructing solicitors sitting behind, either metaphorically behind a screen, instructing them or indeed in court. And of course, they're doing much of the heavy lifting in sorting out lots of the problems. Mm. What professional experience is needed to become a circuit judge? So first of all, you need to be a lawyer, either a solicitor or a barrister. At the moment, Silex lawyers can't apply to be circuit judges, but they can apply to be different types of judges. But at the moment, circuit judges are just barrister or a solicitor. Is is it more popular for a barrister to become a judge or a solicitor? 
that it, there's probably it's a difficult question to answer um, because I think it's probably more common for a barrister to end up as a circuit judge mm. if you looked at the ratios and the proportions versus a solicitor becoming a circuit judge. I think that's probably fair to say, yeah. but it might be that as we, we, we develop this conversation, uh, we can get involved in the detail of those sorts of things maybe a bit later on. Yeah. Um, so returning to what professional experience is, is required to become a circuit judge, you've got to be qualified for at least seven years. But in reality, it's often much longer than that. So I was qualified for about 15 or 16 years when I applied to become a recorder. Uh, don't be wrong, there are some really clever sausages out there who do it much sooner than that, but certainly no earlier than seven years. So mm. you've got to have you've got to have a few battle scars, you've got to have been in a few fights, you've got to have learned what gone well you've got to learn how to manage difficult people whether that be advocates or defendants or or witnesses it, it, it's not a job for the faint-hearted and therefore you do want to build up that that body of experience that wherewithal and know-how within a courtroom and with people generally before you want to really go down the route of of becoming the referee what about personal attributes? Are any uh, any of those that are particularly advantageous of um, for a judge to have? <laughs> um, uh, there are about six hundred circuit <laughs> judges, and if you ask this question of each of them, you'd get a range of answers. Some which I would disagree with, and some which I'd agree with. Um, it, it's it's a very difficult question. That one. It's a very good question, if I may say, but. My answer, if I had to say pick one personal attribute that's mm. particularly advantageous, I think it would be kindness or being kind. Uh, again, speaking about the criminal courts only, not always, but often, those people who are witnesses or who are the alleged victims, those who are the defendants, have often had significant trauma in their lives, either from the alleged offence itself, the life that they're currently living, or something in their past. And they're suddenly thrust into this complicated legal world, completely unfamiliar to them. And we ask them to tell us what happened whilst everybody watches. Mm. Whether a defendant, a victim, a witness kindness for me is key to making this this difficult process work and it doesn't mean being soft or giving people light sentences it's just about kindness within the process about being understanding but it also extends to the advocates the lawyers on both sides the police the court staff it's a difficult world to be in they're all doing their best. So a good dollop of kindness just really helps in my view. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. It also um, reminds me of uh, a piece of advice that a solicitor had actually that came on the show about um, a year ago. 
she said that when she is up against somebody new, she will always pick up the phone and introduce herself and say, yeah, we're going to be working together just to make sure that, um, you know, they've got a clear line of communication and that they can work together instead of, you know, having, um, well, just so they can work together very nicely and, and get along because, you know, we're all in the same profession. Absolutely. and. I, I can remember a particular trial years ago as an advocate, I was against my best mate yeah. and we were going hammer, hammering tongs at each other's during this trial. It was a really difficult, stressful, high pressure, high risk sort of case. And we, you know, despite being good mates, despite knowing each other for a very long time, at the end of the day, we weren't as friendly as we might have been. But at the end of the case, when you pack up your wig and gown and you leave court and one of you says to the other, shall we go and get a drink? That's where the camaraderie of the bar and the legal profession generally come in. And it doesn't have to be a drink. It can be a cup of coffee. It can be asking what somebody's doing at the weekend. It's to take the sting or the the caustic nature of what we do out of the situation. It's all wrapped up with kindness. Fantastic. Um, what are the most common types of cases that uh, you have been appointed recently? As I said earlier, as a, as a criminal circuit judge in the Crown Courts, mm. your, your menu, your diet is as wide as you can possibly imagine, except in my case, murder or attempt murder. Right. So I don't have that ticket that we've talked about. Um, but as you're uh, just sort of thinking over the last six or eight weeks or so, uh, drug-related offences are very common. Drugs are often at the heart of offending. Um, either stealing to uh, make money so people can afford drugs or doing uh, harmful things to others whilst on drugs. So drugs um, are a staple of what we do. Um, possession of indecent images is also a relatively common offence that we see. And for me, somewhat scarily, especially with uh, a couple of kids as well, often young people having knives with them in public, it's such a common offence. And people, those who carry the knives, don't really realise quite how dangerous it is yeah. to possess a knife in public and also quite how seriously the courts treat people who have a knife on them in public, irrespective of whether they use it or not. Mm. So really, they're the three sorts of offences that I see quite commonly at the moment. Um, drugs, indecent images and possession of bladed articles. Right. Is there ever uh, trends that come? So you said uh, you explained the, the most common ones, but do you ever, is there any ever a period of time where you will see a lot of cases because of, I don't know, um, of something that's going on in, yeah. in the world? Uh, whether it's in the world or not, um, maybe a little too broad for for my meager <laughs> intellect. Um, but certainly, for instance, if there are particular protests going on in a particular city, and those protests, well, let's say my my city when I was a barrister was Bristol, 
<laughs> and we all know that the Colston statue was pulled down it, and it was seen on the news. And there was public disorder. I'm going to use that neutral phrase. As one would expect, quite a lot of cases have been going through the courts in Bristol to do with that um, public disorder. Um, so I think some of those are still live, so I'm not going to make any sort of comment about them. But events like that can cause a pattern of offences to be seen during the uh, through the criminal courts. Um, certainly, I can well imagine, for instance, um, where... Uh, let's say a particular commodity or product let's say let's say that the government decided to tax very heavily or even more heavily um continental wine for instance you might see more fraud cases or evasion of vat cases coming through involving wine from the continent i see so there are cause and effects in terms of offending but i doubt i doubt there's ever that quite clear link um, that you might see in other industries. Thank you. Do you think that we see a rise in a particular kind of case in the near future or is, is it just too difficult to say? I, I, I guess you've uh, really explained. I, I don't know. It's, I guess it leads on from the question and answer yeah. that we, we've just discussed. I think we're going to see... Again, the same cause and effect is hard to establish, but here's more uh, definitive example. I reckon we're going to start to see offences relating to COVID. Uh, let's say people selling false tests. If you can make something, then you can fake it, can't you? Mm -hmm. um, also, doorstep frauds. There's always doorstep frauds going on, and they rebadge themselves slightly differently as things change. So uh, doorstep frauds conning vulnerable people into paying for some bogus treatment or yeah. another. Uh, yeah. Or what about large frauds against the government's furlough scheme? Let's say a business has decided to make their employees work, but claim the furlough money nevertheless. Right. Um, yeah. What about those business loans, for instance, the COVID business loans that were, um, I don't know whether they're still offered, but were offered to keep the economy moving and keep in, keeping businesses open. Any system um, is open to fraud to a greater or lesser extent. So I do wonder if COVID is a badge, we'll see offences coming through the courts relating to COVID. And we're starting to see one or two, but I'm expecting to see more fairly soon on the basis that it takes a year or two for alleged offences to arrive at the Crown Court pretty much. Um, and of course, COVID has only been around for just under two years. So um, it takes a while for people to start um, committing offences relating to something that's new. Mm. So I guess this would link into my next question. Um, when these cases present themselves to you, how would you prepare for um, a hearing or, or a long trial? Is there a difference? Uh, yeah, well, there's certainly a difference between me as a judge and me as a barrister and the way I prepared so personally, as a judge, I yeah. try and take a step back in preparation. So I'll read the main evidence, the statements and the exhibits. But it's important to remember as a judge, I'm not prosecuting or defending that case. I'm just the referee. 
So I need to avoid over-preparing a case so as to guard against the risk of developing a fixed mindset in that particular case. So after all, I, I don't know quite how the prosecution will present its case or indeed quite how the defence will present its case. Things I may think are important may well not be because the advocates will know their cases far better than I ever will because I've not met the clients, I've not met the witnesses or anything like that. So for me, it's safer to have a general overview of the case to understand what legal arguments might be being pursued. Is the prosecution asking for the defendant's bad character to go in? If that's the case, what's the basis? What's the gateway within the legislation that they say a jury can properly hear about it? So I familiarise myself with the things that I might have to rule upon. But generally, my preparation for the trial is far, far less than the lawyers on both sides. There, there is an opportunity in paper-heavy cases, electronic paper-heavy cases these days, that judges may book reading days in advance of the trial to make sure that they can get on top of a complicated set of papers. But for most trials, we don't take reading days. Uh, and the trial that we're allocated for a particular week may well have a number of other unrelated cases around it every day, such as sentences another case management hearing. So generally, there isn't an opportunity to take particular chunks of reading time to prepare for trials. So so when do you allocate uh, time to read new judgments that have come in or just cases in general? You mean sort of general familiarity with law? Yeah. Or rather than individual cases that were allocated? Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong, please. But I was under the impression that uh, judges kept up to date with what's going on in common law by reading the recorded cases that have have come out. Uh, yes, uh, there, there's a variety of means. As judges, we're incredibly fortunate because there is in on our laptops in front of us access to um, a system called the e-judiciary and that is a large electronic library where we have access to the vast majority of the electronic resources that practitioners have to pay individually to become members of so we have access directly to that we also have newsletters and updates and there's also a circuit judge group that receives court of appeal cases regularly um, uh, curated by uh, another judge in the southwest and those judges i i let's say those judgments i receive and simply put them into different folders dealing with different bits so i'll skim read them when they arrive know the general subject matter, know the general direction of travel of that case. And then when that sort of case comes up where I've got that sort of an issue, I can just go to that folder where I've got all the cases on that topic uh, and just electronically interrogate that folder in the same way that you would in preparation for your legal finals, for instance. I see, I see. Um, so what advice do you have for people barristers in front of a judge for the first time? I'm not a fan of scripts. That wasn't the way I practiced as a barrister. 
um, I used bullet point notes and I've probably had six, seven, eight pupils over my years as a practitioner. And I've always taught them to go from bullet points. Mm -hmm. But I've also taught them in the early days, especially uh, early days of their practice. I always make sure that I had my first sentence, my first paragraph about what I wanted to say to the judge written out in full. In short, give yourself that confidence to know that when you first open your mouth, you know exactly what you're going to say. You can then go on to your bullet points, which allow for a little more flexibility or to respond to things as they develop. But if you have that confidence to say, I know the first 30 words that I'm going to say, and I may even practice them in the mirror in the loo before I've gone in or at home, that, that, that especially in the, those early days, mm. to know what those words feel like in the mouth, you can start. And once you've started, that momentum begins and they can just pick up your bullet points. Yeah. But the, the, the other tip I'd give is to speak to the clerk and the usher and tell them that it's your first time in a Crown Court. They'll get the message to the judge. And I promise you, we do make allowances. We do give that extra little bit of assistance because it helps us that everybody feels comfortable and is doing a good job. Mm -hmm. uh, so, As an example, I know of one barrister, now a, a circuit judge who's far more qualified than I am. When he was a pupil barrister, he had dozens of first cases. So his first mention hearing, his first sentence, his first trial, his first trial on a Tuesday, his first trial on a Wednesday. So he could always tell the usher or the clerk it was his first insert the type of trial that he was doing or hearing that day. So he tells me that it worked a treat for about four months until people cottoned on. Of course, he wasn't misleading anyone. He, it, it was his first process of crime act hearing or whatever it was. But it just, it gives you a soft landing, I think is fair to say. So they're the two main tips I'd give. That's great. It takes us back to uh, what you were saying earlier about being kind. Yeah, and especially kind um, to, I don't, actually, that's the wrong phrasing differently kind to those who are very new uh, yeah. kindness should be across the board but of course with those more senior you can be a little more robust with them you can pull their leg a little bit and give uh, you know give them a cheeky smile uh, because they know where they're overstepping the mark often before you do whilst with those who are very junior if they break a rule, for instance, or if they get a piece of etiquette wrong, for instance, whereas somebody uh, a little more long in the tooth, you might be a bit more robust with, you'll take a very um, forgiving approach with those who are very new. Thank you. So how about now advice to aspiring judges um, who are qualifying either to be a barrister or solicitor? Uh, the first bit of advice I'd give is don't think for a moment about your prospects of becoming a judge when deciding whether you want to be a solicitor, whether you want to go down the Silex route or whether you want to go to the bar. Your career, until you start thinking about being a judge, will be for at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. So make sure that you choose the right career for you. Because if you don't enjoy what you do, 
how will you build your CV? How will you show that enthusiasm for your corner of the law if you've chosen the wrong flavor of profession just based upon some long-term plan that might never come to fruition? And of course, the other part of um, me saying don't think about becoming a judge when you start out and when, or which, which route you're going to take is that by the time anybody listening to this podcast will be um, come to the point of thinking about becoming a judge, this advice I'm giving today is going to be hopelessly out of date. <laughs> but, but all that being said, if you were pushing me on an answer on how is it right now, that's a really difficult question to answer, but I'll answer it as honestly as I can. At a basic level, there should be no difference between a barrister and solicitor becoming a judge. I'm excluding Silex here because, of course, we're talking about circuit judge, uh, while Silex can become judges of, of different types. So basically, there should be no difference between your prospects as a barrister and a solicitor of becoming a circuit judge. Right. But three things stand out for me. The first is that more often than not, criminal barristers will spend a greater percentage of their work diary in the Crown Court as compared to solicitors. Now, I acknowledge the limitations of what I've just said. There are very many solicitor advocates who spend their entire career doing trials in the Crown Court day after day after day. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, more barristers appear more regularly in the Crown Court than solicitors. And therefore, more barristers and solicitors have gained experience in that particular court, which they're applying to sit in as a circuit judge. And that must be of benefit to the application, it seems to me. Of course, it's not to say that solicitors can't or don't. I'm just speaking generally across the professions. So that's sort of point one. The next factor that stands out for me is trailblazing. And what I mean by that is that my old chambers, for instance, Albion in Bristol, Albion probably saw 20 barristers become judges in the time that I was there and many, and many more judges before I even arrived at Albion. It's a bit of a, a judge factory. But that means that there was a general collective knowledge about how to go about the application process. There is a knack to the application process. Uh, the types of CV building points that would help. And also being able to ask people questions about what may improve your own CV before embarking upon an application. So again, that collective knowledge really does help in perfecting your or, or making as polished an application as you individually can possibly make it. Uh, and the third factor which stands out, um, the other benefit of being in a chambers environment which has a track record of producing judges is that it gives you the confidence to say, hey, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And confidence to do something should never be underestimated. And so for those reasons, as of today, if you're saying, 
if you were 10 years experience today and thinking about becoming a judge, I think it's probably easier to become a circuit judge, a crown court judge from the launch pad of being a barrister. But there are very, very many circuit judges who come from a solicitor background. But quite simply, I think the bar is a slightly easier route once you're at that 10 years experience of acting as a launch pad into becoming a Crown Court judge. Uh, but that said, of, uh, returning to your original question of which route I'd advise if you wanted to be a judge, the short answer is I wouldn't give such advice to anybody starting out. Make decisions based upon what you want to do in the short and medium term. By the time you get to that medium term, you can then plan for your next steps at that point. And by that stage, as I say, everything that I've just said will be woefully out of date. Well, thank you very much. For that that was great advice. In your opinion, what, what do you think makes a strong advocate? And can I just ask as well, do you think that this, uh, what you think now differs from what you thought when you were um, practicing barrister? Um, so it, so part one is what makes a strong advocate. Part two is has my opinion changed having been sitting as a full-timer for two or three months and as a recorder for the last two or three years? Yes. Okay. Let's start with what makes a strong advocate. There, there are a thousand different qualities that you can select and you can blend together to make a brilliant advocate. And some blends suit some people and some blends suit other people. But if I had to choose what makes a strong advocate, I think it's being trusted. It's as simple as that, really. There are um, long-winded advocates who dot up every I and cross every T. There are advocates who their style is short and punchy. We've got advocates whose command of the English language causes them to paint vivid pictures to the jury far better than I ever could. We've got street brawling types of advocates that you want in your corner in a multi-handed, tricky case. We've got the pure lawyers who can always see a legal angle to argue to the benefit of either prosecution or defence. We've got those who are quiet. We've got those who are noisy. We've got those who are elegant. Those like me who are less elegant. And then we've got those brilliant advocates who can do all of it and they select just the right tool for the job. But none of that matters if you're not trusted. Know your case. Know the law. And please, please, please remember, reputation is everything. Never take a flyer on a half truth. It doesn't matter how good you are if you're not trusted. If you're not trusted, you don't have anything in your locker and you won't be an effective advocate. Mm -hmm. Integrity is everything. Has that changed since I've been sitting? I don't think as a general principle, my opinion has changed. It's always been drilled into me 
and I absolutely buy into it 100%. But certainly as I sit, those lawyers who clearly know the case papers, who clearly know the legal framework that they're dealing with, who I know from their pedigree, from their bona fides, from the my experience of them advocating in front of me, where they can put their hand up and say, I made a mistake. It is my fault. Blame me. So showing that integrity, those are the lawyers who are most helpful to the court, who are most persuasive, whether they are the long-winded dot every I, cross every T, or whether they are the short and punchy styled advocate. I can forgive things that annoy me or that I wouldn't do my um, that way so long as I've got they've got the law, they've got the case, and they're trusted. Before we get into the second half of the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that I chose to study my LPC at, and that's the University of Law. The University of Law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. I'm blown away by that piece of advice. Honestly, um, I think that everything that you've just said, people can really take with them throughout their entire life, whatever profession they're in. I think you can apply that to so many things. It's so important. It's it's really striking, both as an advocate and as a judge, when you know 100% that you can trust the lawyer or advocate or witness or a police officer in front of you. Because those that put their hands up and say, I got it wrong. Those that say, bluntly, I've not spoken to my client about that. Um, I'm going to take further instructions. I'm sorry for causing you a delay, rather than guessing at the answer and then having to change it later. It just makes the system work. And you can relax as a judge and say, okay, persuade me about what you want to happen. You might not win, but you'll receive a receptive audience. And it's so important. It's so powerful. What's the most challenging part of being a judge? (laughs) Parts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, the first thing to say is that there are lots of challenges. There are lots of challenges in lots of different jobs. And I'm not for a moment going to paint that the challenges for the judiciary are any harder than somebody working in an entirely different field. Um, we, in some ways, um, are protected um, in what we do, and certainly on the coal face of advocates and lawyers in the criminal justice system, they've got it tough at the moment. They've got it really tough, and they're working flat out to keep everything running. And therefore, when I talk about my challenges and the challenges of me as the circuit judge, because others won't agree with me, 
that isn't me saying other people have it easy or that my challenges are any worse or even close to as bad as their challenges. So I just put that caveat at the start, uh, but it's an important one. Mm-hmm. But what's the most challenging bit about being a, a Crown Court Circuit judge? To some extent, it's the powerlessness of the job. In some respects, we have huge power. We have significant resources to use. We have lots of laws that we can deploy. We can achieve an awful lot and do, but we can't fix everything. We see broken people, broken families day after day, and we have a relatively small toolkit to have a positive impact on the lives of people. We can try and use those tools in an innovative way. We can put tools together to try and achieve something different. But the causes of alleged offences being committed are often deep-seated and very hard to tackle. And the Crown Court is often the last station on a long and complicated, a difficult and often sad journey. Mm. And by the time that train pulls into our station, the options are automatically more limited. And of course, depending upon the seriousness of the case and the other factors involved, you may be left with the length of the sentence of imprisonment rather than the type of sentence. So I must ask now, what is, uh, what is the best part of being a judge, in your opinion? The best part of being a judge? There, there are so many fantastic bits about being a judge. There are the victims who are protected after an arduous trial where a defendant is sent to prison, and rightly so, And that victim, you can see the weight taken away from their shoulders, knowing that they are protected and that they have respite from, let's say, long-term abuse that has been taking place. But on the flip side of that, let's say you've got a young defendant who has been in and out of trouble for the last four or five years, that in blunt terms is a pain in the backside to the local community of their particular offending. And they've had chances before and they've failed and they go and offend again and they get locked up again. But it's those moments where you give that last chance, that one more chance or something's changed in their life that you think maybe this is that little chink of light And let's exploit it. Let's throw everything we've got at it. Let's get the probation service involved. Let's get local housing involved. Let's see if we can turn it around, not just for the benefit of the defendant, but of course, if we can sort this defendant out, then it means that the local shops are protected, that the local antisocial behaviour is suppressed, that the local community can see somebody sorting it out, that that person gets a job and they start to pay taxes. All of those things, it's not just about the defendants, it's about the effective success of that defendant on the wider community. That you take that opportunity, you think, I don't, I'm not sure whether this is going to work. 
but let's take a chance. And on my shoulders, on my head, be it if it goes wrong. And it's when they come back for reviews every month and you can see them rebuilding that life. You can see things falling into place. You can see them, um, their health improve. And then you hear that they've got a job. And then you hear that they're starting to help in their local community. Then you hear that they've met the victim and apologized face to face and that they're now in regular communication. It's not suitable for every case. And of course, there are those cases that are far too serious that you'd ever consider anything like this. But now and again, when it works, it's the very best feeling. That sounds incredible. Incredible. Um, What about One Piece? Uh, Well, what is one thing that people don't tend to know about judges? I'm sure there's lots of things, but I'm not telling you most of them. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason why you don't know. Um, (laughs) It can be lonely. Ultimately, important decisions rest on your shoulders and nobody else's. Do you send someone to prison or not? Do you give them a chance at rehabilitation? What if they hurt someone after you've given them the chance? What if this was the one, their their best opportunity for rehabilitation, but you decide to send them to prison? How can I protect a victim who doesn't want protecting, who won't support a prosecution, who doesn't want a restraining order after their spouse has been convicted of abusing them? What happens when everyone goes back to their homes or indeed they go back to prison? Once the usher says, all rise and I stand up and leave court. So it can be a lonely job. Mm. And for that reason, it's not for everyone. That does sound tough, but I suppose if you, as I said, like going back to what you said earlier, if you're that trusted person and you combine that, you know, with being kind and you, you believe that you're making the right choice, I mean, is that how you get through it? Um, I... That that's a again. It's a really good question, and I can only answer personally. Yeah, I'm I'm relatively good at making a decision and then moving on from that decision, and so long as I make that decision based upon the best of information that's available to me, that if I've got any holes in information that I've spotted that I ask for clarification to fill those holes in information. So long as I'm confident that I understand the law in that particular area, I can take on board the expertise of the probation service or a psychiatric report or um, reference letters where other people talk about a defendant in glowing terms versus the person that's in front of me who might have committed a pretty mean offence. Once you collect all that information and put it through the law and put it through your judgment and your kindness and your fairness, if you arrive at a decision and say, that's the best I can do today, then I'm relatively good at saying, oh, that's that decision made. Let's see how that works. It's not always easy. And 
I sometimes hear about cases where I think, well, that didn't work out or worse. But we're paid uh, and we're paid well to make balanced and difficult decisions in the best way that we can using all the tools, the training and experience that we've got. And it's not always going to be spot on. It's not always going to be perfect, but it's certainly the best system that we've got at the moment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I've come to all the end of my questions. So although really it's got to be Milan, it's got to be Milan. <laughs> I've been thinking about it for the last 45 minutes. Right. So it is uh, illegal to keep a pigsty in front of uh, in front of your house unless suitably hidden. So that was true. Oh, um, good. Milan states that it is a legal requirement to smile at all times except at funerals or hospital. That was actually false. That was a lie. Oh, thank God for that. My I reputation think. was hanging, was hanging on that answer. Oh, no, I spotted false. a false thing. <laughs> Wait, stop. What? Hold the recording. I had a oh, mix-up. You're, you're, t- you're, oh, you're pulling the rug from under <laughs> I'm me. I'm so or... sorry. Carry on. At least I admitted I was wrong. wrong. Right, I'm going to take you back. <laughs> Integrity. To what you were saying okay. Earlier, I was wrong. I hold my hands up. That's actually true. It's the law. No. Yeah, it is. And Lord Denning's full name was uh, Baron Alfred Thompson. Tom for short. I said oh, uh, Denning after, of course. Um, and I said Robert Robbie. I'm so embarrassed. Let me. Just... Well, that's a tr- that's a tricky little question. That's a tricky <laughs> question. I know. I, mean, I, I, I think it's massively unfair. Please forgive me. <laughs> and uh, you know, you know, showing integrity. I actually, I actually knew that, obviously, uh, but I just wanted to increase the drama at the end of this podcast. Yes, and you absolutely honestly, did that. Honestly, honestly, that's absolutely true. But it might not be. <laughs> Thank you so much for being an incredible guest. Every word you have said has been fantastic advice, and I have had the best time chatting with you. Thank you well, for being a show. I, I, I don't know whether it's an incredible podcast or incredible advice, but it's also been a pleasure uh, <laughs> speaking to you as well. Well, I hope you um, come back maybe in 10 years' time or something like that so you can give, um, well, you can update your advice as you were talking about earlier. <laughs> I hope so as well, Stephanie. Best of luck with everything. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. 
part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment-focused experience, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with ULaw, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.